Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash Wondery and use code Wondery for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash Wondery, code Wondery. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Hello, it's Nerdist Podcast number 528. Uh, good podcast week coming up in addition to today's podcast on wednesday morgan freeman friday tom cruise next week jonah hill uh and then also oh and a really great chat with pete holmes in there as well so so some good podcasts coming up maybe if you haven't already subscribed to the nurse podcast go ahead and subscribe to this very podcast so that it can be hand-delivered right to your brain. Um, also, at Midnight's back this week, we just got off a hiatus. Thank you so much if you came out to see me perform in uh, Salt Lake City at Wise Guys. Uh, super fun shows, guys. But this week, we're back on At Midnight. Your late-night companion buddy show is returning. Uh, Greg Proops, Dana Gould, Kristen Shaw, Paul F. Tompkins, Brett Gelman, Heather Ann Campbell, Dana Gould. Some really, really, really fantastic shows coming up. So uh, watch that. Comedy Central Midnight's after Colbert or 11 if you're on the Central Time Zone. We couldn't call it at 11 Central, although that'd be kind of funny. Oh, well. Missed opportunity. This episode of the Nerdist Podcast is brought to you by Stamps.com. Print out the exact postage that you need right from your computer and put it on on the whatever it is that you're mailing. Any kind of parcel, letter, package, doesn't matter what it is. Your mail carrier, come pick it up. Don't go to the post office. That's ultimately, eh, if you work at the post office, I'm not trying to be insulting to you, but I'm sure if you worked at the post office, you'd be like, wouldn't it be great if less people came into the post office so that it wasn't such a madhouse all the time? They think I'm crazy. I think they're crazy. Uh, it's just a confluence of, um, of not funness. That was a clunky way to say that. But stamps.com adores you, they want to make your life easier. And that's why they're giving you this special offer as an artist listener. No risk trial, $110 bonus offer, including a digital scale and up to $55 of free postage. Don't wait. Go to stamps.com before you do anything else. Click the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in Nerdist at stamps.com. Enter the promo code Nerdist. This episode is Anthony Bourdain and uh, power Twitter. Power Twitter. You know, so people have connected, tried to connect us via Twitter. Oh, you should do the podcast. Oh, you should do the podcast. And, you know, I don't, I, I don't, I've never met Anthony Bourdain before. Uh, he seems like a super cool guy, but I didn't want to bother him out of the blue. But one guy said, hey, you guys uh, should meet up. And I said, hey, I'd love to have Anthony Bourdain on any time. And he responded. He responded while he was answering a bunch of questions on Twitter while waiting for a flight to China. Uh, and he just so happened to be coming into Los Angeles for a couple of days. And so he came into the podcast. And he did not disappoint, my friends. The man is as friggin' cool as you would imagine he would be. Um, he is promoting Parts Unknown, which is on CNN Sunday nights at 9 p.m. And uh, I give you the Nerdist Podcast number 528 with Anthony Bourdain. 
God damn it, this man is cool. Now entering Nerdist.com. Couple days, right? Uh, yeah. It was like three day speaking series of speaking gigs, and we managed to pin you down somehow. No, I'm I'm I'm, I'm excited. I'm uh, hope we could uh, talk about nerd, you know nerdly matters. <laughs> there are there are well, but there, there there is a lot of crossover I think with what you do and the stuff that we obsess over. It's just yours is a specific yours is a very specific tangible thing. Uh, but then also we'll talk about because you did you've done comics and you you love comics. Yep. I saw you at Comic Con last year, but we didn't we didn't talk. But it's funny that um, it, it it never ceases to amaze me the power of Twitter in terms of people just connecting and going, "Hey, I'd like to see you on this thing," and then it gets people like you and me talking, and then and then you're here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like I just get excited about that because so much of social media can be used for evil, and it's yeah. nice when it's used to like to to connect people and build <laughs> things. But the tweet that I initially saw, you were. Did you just start doing a Q&A waiting for a plane to Shanghai? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I started with one person. It's the most boring episode of The Layover. Questions, and I said, oh, fuck it. I'm here. You know, it's a good way to kill time. Yeah. 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 How was Shanghai? Great. You really see the future, and it doesn't include us. <laughs> <laughs> it's like... <laughs> You know, it's just so – they're so far ahead. I mean there's like a Maserati dealership on every corner, buildings, modern buildings and infrastructure and high-speed rail. And, and everything works, right? Everything works and it's just – every time I go, it's, uh, it's moved forward 20 years in, in, in four years and uh, the booming middle class and uh, – Sex bots? Not yet. Soon. Yeah. Close. They're close. They're close. <laughs> you know what we're waiting for? I think we're just waiting for the vending machine, which is sort of a reverse ATM, where you just go up and <laughs> stick your dick in a machine. It is. Yeah. And your credit card, and then you, and then you walk away. But, you know, I just kept thinking that, uh, you know, that Simpsons episode, you know, the line, you know, welcome future masters, because it's really... <laughs> <laughs> I don't... Uh, we'll, I, we will all be carrying their golf bags in a few years. There's yeah. absolutely no way around it. I mean, it's all happening there, and... Wow. It's just money. You can smell money. People making money, uh, spending money, and building stuff. And uh, uh, it's incredible. Now, wow. I worked at a golf course in college. I'm fi- if, I, if I can have really great uh, – if we could just have our entire country blanketed with great internet all the time, that's worth it to me. I- I'm totally in. You could be in like rural shithole village in rural – like, you know, Sichuan province and uh, you're getting five bars. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, the weirdest thing I found is – is uh, in Congo. We were we were literally looking for the heart of darkness from the movie, yeah, and, or from the book, and we're up in uh, in uh, all the way up the Congo River, and it's like a hundred miles away from anything resembling electrical power, uh, an electric light bulb, even a flush toilet. I mean, nothing. You know, everything has been completely devastated. Just you'll see a toilet, but there's only a bucket of river water next to it to slosh in there. But the entire time. Three bars at least on my phone. I'm, I'm, fucking, I'm Instagramming from from the jungle in the middle of the Congo. You should just take pictures. And go. This would be a good place for a toilet. This would be a good place. Yeah. I should here. I just should here. I mean, I have um, I have a couple of weeks off at the end of the summer, and 
I can I can go pretty much anywhere, and I'm I'm not I can't figure out where to go. I Tokyo. Figure, go to Tokyo. Yeah, that's what I that's what I was trying to say because I've had some friends who went to Tokyo and like uh, they just like their eyes were dilated when they got back. It's deeply traumatizing. I mean, in the sense that it's like. <laughs> Life before acid and life after acid. <laughs> <laughs> really like that. So I thought I might go to like Reykjavik or something, you know? No. Like, no? Oh, no, totally. <laughs> it blows there. <laughs> it fucking blows. I'm so glad. I'm so glad because tickets are really cheap from New York. They're like, you know. It's, yeah. like, it's a town with five bars and a bunch of like, you know, if you like hot tubbing and drinking your face off, you know, oh, and who yeah. doesn't? But, you know, after, <laughs> day two, after day two, you pretty much had the... Icelandic experience. Wow. Ah, oh, all right. All no. right, done. Reykjavik, no. off the list. Wow. Totally not. But Bjork. <laughs> but Bjork. Well, that's where we'll get our, that's where we'll get our, our Icelandic fill, is mm. from Bjork. Um, so you think Tokyo, and then uh, is there any place else? Because I'll be on the East Coast, so... Heading back to Tokyo. Well, you could go down to Epcot Center. They have all the showcases of the world. Right Matt, I, I'm not. <laughs> no, it's right there. You got Japan. It's right next to France for some reason. What's your feeling about Disney World? <laughs> My daughter loves it. <laughs> I, I just went to Universal with my daughter, and you know, did the Harry Potter ride and the whole thing. And I, you know, I'm yeah, I'm into it. Sure. Have <laughs> you ever thought about just like going to Disney World and pretending you're like in a bunch of different countries and really doing like knock out a season of a show <laughs> in a yeah. right, in a, right around the lagoon? <laughs> That's kind of sad. <laughs> <laughs> You're trying so hard to just like get the framing right so it looks like the actual place. So here in yeah. New Orleans, yeah. they eat their stew out of a bread bowl. Yeah. There's corn dogs in every country, it turns out. Uzbekistan, land of contrast. <laughs> Ooh, corn dogs. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently the future has churros. <laughs> do they have churros all over Disney World? Is that just they do, and they're Disney more expensive Land? in Disney World. Isn't that weird? Well, yeah, because they have to send them over That's from here. They, have know, to be out they come from Oliveira Street. Oh, yeah. so yeah. happens. That's why. Um, so I, I kind of want to explore this idea of kind of uh, you know food nerdery. This is the idea of the way that I define the very much overused word nerd is that it's someone who tries to understand a thing better than anyone else on the planet. Right. Like to an obsessive degree almost that they would sacrifice most things in life just to understand that thing so that they can then use that information to their benefit. To be better well, than someone it's, yeah, that's right. You know, you'll notice how I think the, the purest example of the sort of the foodie mentality is how – and I really hate the word foodie, but for lack of a better term. That's your how, word, How yeah. foodies use Instagram. Like – Hypothetically, when somebody takes pictures of their food, and everybody does now, you know, you, you, we all, I'm guilty of it. We all sit down and eat at a restaurant, everybody out with the cell phones, and we're all taking pictures of our food. Are we sharing? Are we sharing our, you know, look at this wonderful food I'm eating, you know, look at that. Are you sharing? Are you educating? Are you inspiring? No, it's an aggressive act. You say, look what I'm eating. I really hope you're sitting there in some shit-stained undies on your couch, you know, eating, uh, you know, <laughs> eating Cheetos right now. You don't want other people to, to share with you and say, oh, that's so interesting. Look what I'm eating. No, it's, a, it's an aggressive act. And I think a lot of foodieism is sort of aggressive. It's, it's the whole point of taking pictures of your food is to make other people feel bad about their food choices. And in a lot of ways, uh, if you go on the food uh, websites – uh, they're heavily populated by people who are looking to, in one way or another, make other people feel bad or stupid. Right. Um, yeah. and, and that's look. It's that's uh, it's a phenomenon that I very much benefited from. Obviously, <laughs> um, it's something that I'm guilty of for sure. Uh, I was a, food, uh, a preeminent porn, uh, you know, food pornographer, but. Um, 
I think hopefully, because we used to not care about food at all in this country and were oblivious to it and knew nothing about it, we're just in our own awkward and and sometimes annoying ways catching up with like the Italians and the and the French and and much of Asia, uh, people for whom food has always been really really important. I mean, you go out to dinner and in, in nowadays, when I grew up, you'd go to a, you'd meet some friends, you'd go out to a movie, then you go to dinner and you talk about the movie you just saw and then while you're eating dinner, the movie you're gonna see. Now you go to dinner and you talk about the dinner you had last week and the dinner you're going to have next week. You <laughs> forgot, fuck the movie. Um, what we're doing is we're catching up with cultures for whom food is always, you know, worth arguing over. You know, you sit with a bunch of Italians in Italy, they're arguing about who's got the best cheese, the best this and that. But it's not the only thing. In Italy, it, great food at any price point is an important thing and a vital component of a healthy life, but it's not the only thing. You know, sex is also important. Sure. Um, uh, you know, good conversation, art, films, you know, there are other stuff. It's part of a, a bigger picture. And that's something that, you know, in a lot of foodie circles, uh, we seem to have forgotten about those other parts. That food's great, but, you know, you know, sex with, you know, someone other than yourself is probably... <laughs> Advisable or <laughs> desirable. When did it shift, and what what caused the shift in America? I, I probably the celebrity chef thing. I mean, Emeril and and uh, people like that. Suddenly, people gave a shit about the sh- who's cooking. You know, they started to think about who's making your food, and they started to care about what that those people thought. Whereas before, you know, chefs were service personnel. It was like you walked in a restaurant, I will have this steak and I'll have it with the fish, my good man, and you'll do it. You know, you had something in mind when you went to the restaurant. Now you walk into a restaurant and you say, well, I don't really know what's on the menu, but I know who Wiley Dufresne is and I've heard he's really good and he does a certain type of food. You know, I want him to tell me what I should eat. And that's, so that's, that's, that's an important power shift. And uh, that really started it. Um, do you like the idea? Because th- this is a little bit, it's kind of the theme of your comic book, actually. The, the idea of going in and then having, having the chef go, no, 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 you're going to eat this and this is how you're going to eat it. And, and well, don't fuck with it. Uh, look, you go to a sushi master. I mean, I was thinking very much of, uh, of uh, Jiro Ono at, uh, in, in, in Japan, maybe one of the finest sushi restaurants in, in the world. Any great sushi chef. I happen to know if you're the sort of person who goes into a good sushi bar, this guy spent seven years just learning to make the rice before he was permitted to, to even touch the fish by his master. Um, you know, they've been making the same thing over and over and over, trying to get it to you know these incremental levels of excellence. So when you walk into a sushi bar and you a good one, and you sit down and immediately you know fill up the little 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 container of a soy sauce, a little dish of soy sauce, and take a big wad of wasabi and start making this slurry in it, you're killing them, okay? They, they're dying inside. They, <laughs> all of their work and toil is obviously wasted on you before you've taken a single bite. And they hate themselves. They hate you. And, um, <laughs> some guys are in a position to tell you to fuck off. Like uh, there have been a number of chefs here who, who just, if you ask for a California roll, they, they kick you out of the restaurant. Right. I just figured I'd take this to the next level and imagine if... If all entertainment, uh, all modes of entertainment died off, which is not an unforeseeable uh, situation, except food, and all power sort of reverted to chefs, what kind of a society would we live in? And also, I think there's some wish fulfillment there in that, <laughs> you know, in a perfect world, you know, if a, if a sushi chef felt free to reach across the sushi bar and, and lop off the head, you know, of a customer guilty of douchedom, um, 
I can't say that I'm, I'd be terribly unhappy to live in that world. <laughs> it's, it's obviously something I've, I've dreamed many times of doing. Well, there is, there is definitely a paradigm shift in becoming like a super chef. Where you do, you are permitted, I mean, I guess anyone can say this whenever they want, but you are permitted to go, uh, no, fuck yourself, you're not going to have it this way, there's nothing wrong with this, and you can leave if you don't well, like it. it. it just, you have many choices. It, it, I don't see it as that inappropriate. Look, there are people who are, if, if you're a chef who's talking about themselves in the third person, you know, maybe we're, 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 we've gone too far. Sure. Uh, chefs are craftsmen. They're generally not artists. They're not rock stars. Food is not the next rock and roll. I think it's just fair to say of every chef I know that if they, you know, if they could play bass like Bootsy Collins, they sure as shit wouldn't be working in a kitchen. <laughs> um, but I, I think chefs know what they're good at, and they'd like you to have that. And, and you should probably want that, too. I mean, you don't tell the dentist how to deal with your teeth. Right. Uh, he knows better than you. Uh, the chef knows, their, knows the, the, his strengths and weaknesses. You want their best game. I mean, it's, it, what, what these chefs are asking of you, the customer, is nothing more than, than behavior, their, the kind of way they behave. I mean, when we go out to eat, we walk into restaurants. We don't order from the menu. We say, what, just tell the chef what to cook. You know, what, are they, what are they good at? They know I'll have that. I want what you do. You think you do well. I'm not, I'm not looking for uh, you know, for you to try to do something else. Are you still able to, I mean, obviously you have, you've done several shows and written several books about it, but are you able to enjoy food just as a consumer and not as a master chef? Like, do you, do you, could you analyze it, analyze it, or can you go, oh, this just tastes good? Uh, first thing I've, I learned, and I think it's true of all chefs, is we all turn off that, a, a happy meal for us is where you can completely turn off that analytical side of your brain. I don't want to be at work when I'm eating. Eating should be a joyous, fun, sensual, submissive experience. You know, you're the top. You're the control, controlling factor. In the kitchen, it's all about controlling the situation, the physical forces of the universe, the people you work with. You're manipulating an experience for your customer. <laughs> you're on it. You're like an air traffic controller. When you, when you go out to dinner yourself, you don't want to, you want to unplug. You, you want to... Just relax and, and go with it. You don't want to be thinking about, man, that busboy's been spending a lot of time in a bus area. You, you, you don't do that. That's why chefs after work generally go to like a really sort of a super casual family-style Chinese or, or casual joints because they don't want to be thinking about it in any kind of a professional way. You know, a happy eating experience is when I completely, can completely forget that I ever cook professionally and just kind of give myself over to the emotional, you know, enjoy it in an emotional way, yeah. um, in a non-snobby way. That's hugely important. If you're snobby, you really can't enjoy food the way it should be enjoyed. You know, the best meals, it's no accident that the best meals of our lives are usually, you know, a bowl, just the right time, the right place, the right song on the radio, you know, a bowl of pho and a low plastic stool or a, a, a decent bowl of pasta out of, you know, a cracked, not particularly nice bowl, you know. Those are the, not, not particularly great wine, but... You know the, the the company's right, the place is right. That it's just it's a confluence of events. It's not just oh, this is the famous pasta I've ever had. You know, it <laughs> yeah. just ruins it to over intellectualize it and analyze it. It's like a play by play during sex. It's uh, you know that would suck. Yeah, <laughs> unless you're fucking Howard Cosell. Uh, yeah, 
now? Yeah, sure. Why well, not? Dig him up. He no, might that's, that's, <laughs> guys, no, we're not on board. All right. Is it, is it, is it, are, what have you noticed about what? What sort of consistencies have you noticed through? I mean, because obviously, food is the, the thing that literally unites everyone. It's the mm-hmm. thing that everyone, you know, we have to eat or we die, and that's it. So yeah. how do? So you know, what what do you see about? Um, Attitudes and cultures who basically eat to survive versus cultures who eat as you know as as more of a creative expression. Well, I've certainly been places where there is so little food that it's strictly a matter of survival. Where it's you know walk ten miles to get a bucket of water every morning, and anything that anything that even resembles animal protein, people will grab. But just above that level, I mean, even in c- countries again and again and again, places I go where the people are really really poor and really fight to live every day. They are intensely proud of their food and take a lot of pleasure in making good food, even if they have very, very, very little. Um, you see this all over, you know, India, Latin America. Um, you know, it may be just rice and beans, but they're good beans that somebody really worked on and, and put a lot of heart and soul into. And those are often the most enjoyable. And in fact, the engine that drove gastronomy from the beginning, I mean, even French gastronomy, these were not the best and the brightest people who ended up as chefs. Traditionally, they were, you know, people, the poor, the, the, the less smart son, you know, farm boys, um, refugees, you know, pretty dysfunctional people from tough circumstances to start with who grew up poor. Um, and a lot of the dishes came from poverty. I mean, most of these techniques came from very real need to take a, you know, the one, you know, rooster they had, this tough, nasty old bird, and figure out a way to make it tender and delicious. You know, how do I make something delicious from nothing? And, you know, give a culture like France or China a couple of hundred years to, to, to work on a dish, and chances are they're going to come up with something really good. So, I think, and again, most chefs I know would, would much rather eat, you know, a, a well made bowl of offcuts of hooves and snouts uh, than they would a sirloin steak, which is endlessly boring. I mean, you see this on Top Chef all the time. Some knucklehead will say, I'm really going to impress Chef Colicchio with a filet mignon. No, <laughs> that's not going to work. He, that's not cooking. A chimpanzee could do that, you know? Um, but what's weird is that it's hot now. All of these dishes that the poor used to have to eat, like pig's foot and pig's tail, um, now you can't find those in, in a lot of poor neighborhoods. You have to go to like you know spend twenty nine ninety five to so, you know the hipster restaurant to get dishes that throughout history people had to eat because they had no money. So it's this weird dynamic happening. There. Am I wrong in assuming that? <clears throat> am I wrong in assuming that that's what happened with lobster? Because lobster to me just basically seemed like sea insects. Like it, 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 they seem it doesn't it doesn't really seem like oh only the mo- only the wealthiest people can obtain this. First prison riot in America was in Cape Cod, uh, uh, you know, shortly after, uh, the, you know, they came over on the Mayflower. Um, you know, back then, lobster was considered a pest. Fishermen would yank off the claws and throw them back in the water. And they fed the prison population in Massachusetts lobster like 29 days out of 30 in the month. And they, they rioted <laughs> and then appealed to the Supreme Court on saying it was cruel and unusual punishment. <laughs> and the court found in their favor, said, you can't do this. It's monstrous. <laughs> you know, I like lobster, but it requires almost no skill to cook. And uh, it's, you know, it's pretty boring uh, after, you know, every once in a while, it's a really nice, expensive, beautiful thing to have. But you don't make everything better. With lobster, you right. know, it's like filet mignon is a pretty uninteresting thing uh, in and of itself. It's uh, 
there is a, a, a sort of a impulse to to think that you know the more expensive ingredients I load onto the plate, the better it will be. You know that's rarely the case. What are some common? Don't tell it to the Capitol Grill. No, don't yeah. put a lobster on there for you. <laughs> <laughs> I only like lobster as a way to get more butter in my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> I like to have to defeat my food before I eat it by Just breaking its it. fucking skin <laughs> to get inside. <laughs> but uh, what are some common misconceptions that you see that you know that people have, well, maybe in this country, that have about? Food, so, like, like sort of like what you were saying, like oh, filet mignon—it's the best of the best. No, not really. Or no. there are some other things. Like, look, I think I like bacon a lot, but you know, enough. Do I need a bacon tattoo? No. <laughs> Do I need a bacon T-shirt? No. Jonah, <laughs> uh, hide the T-shirt you were going to give him. <laughs> uh, it's like a bacon, with a a bacon martini. You know, get over yourself. Right. You know? uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, people are just so enthusiastic now, and and, and a lot of people, you know. There's so much to lampoon and make fun of. I don't know. What I've, one of the things that we, I've noticed over time, uh, you know, I'll have downtime in like a Southeast Asian uh, hotel, um, Asia, Africa in particular, and they have food channels there, you know, travel and living or travel and learning channels, and they buy a lot of American food shows. And, but they seem to specialize. I mean, the bulk of the food programming they're interested in in uh, many of these countries are like man versus food and, you know, bacon wars. You know, it's not just a hamburger. <laughs> it's a bacon burger. You know? And it's, it's all giant, you know, like morbidly obese Americans shoveling these huge masses of really disgusting food into their faces hour after hour after hour. And I'm thinking, you know what? They're not watching this because they said, oh, I would really like to try some of the bacon. They're look, said, look at these fucking Americans. Yeah. <laughs> All the things we thought about them, they're true. Look at them. I, I can't wait till tomorrow. I'm going to join Al-Qaeda. <laughs> look at that fuck. So it's sort of like the way that we used to watch Jerry Springer. Basically, America is Jerry Springer. It makes you feel better about yourself. You know, so you can't eat and, you know, nine pound, you know, baconator. <laughs> do, you, uh, do you cook for yourself? Just... For just leisurely, or do you? Do you well, feel- it's a weird situation because my wife's a fighter and in training constantly uh, to compete in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. She trains in uh, mixed martial arts, uh, but she competes in uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and uh, you know that's three hours a day, six sometimes seven days a week, and I mean every day. And she's on a hundred percent protein diet, so it's basically your refrigerator full of steaks and the occasional vegetable. Um, so. Uh, I generally, if I'm cooking at home, unless it's a special occasion, a holiday, or I'm entertaining, which is not that often, um, I'm cooking for maybe me and my daughter. Yeah. So I'll cook pasta, sim- simple stuff. You know, I'm not. I, I look forward to the holidays when my in-laws come over and we'll have company because then I really kind of get. I turn into this uh, what I've described as sort of a psychotic, frenetic Ina Garden. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I my whole life I, I was first a cook for thirty years, which means I was never home, never never cooked at home, had no kind of a normal social life, had never owned anything, had, you know, didn't have health insurance, didn't never owned a car. Um, you know, I lived on the margins, and then uh, now that I've been traveling for 14 years, that, that's even, you know, just as strange and dysfunctional. So the, the few times that I'm at home or on vacation with my family, I, normal is so exotic to me. Like, I, I'm trying to emulate dad grilling in the backyard, like, 
with a fervor that's just a little frightening. You know, it's like, come on, everybody. You know, we're going to have all the greatest hits of my childhood. We're having steamers and lobster and, and, and cheeseburgers and hot dogs, too. And did I mention the, the, the corn and the tomatoes? And you'll eat it. You're going to fucking enjoy it. And, yeah. Eat my youth. Eat my youth. It's, no, no, no. It's, it's exactly that. And it's really sort of sad. I mean, I go with these, like, go, I, I do a cycle menu for the week, you know, for my poor terrified family. It's like, you know, no, no, you know, it's like a Thursday's lamb chop day. Don't be late. <laughs> Anthony, please stop. You, get, like, you go into the, oh, I'm surprised that Sonny and Cher's on again, kids. Uh, <laughs> just let's watch this episode together. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I'm laughing, but. <laughs> Why do you need a computer when you can have a Mr. Microphone? You can talk to the radio. Yeah. You know how Ina's always gone? It's like, I can't wait till Jeffrey gets home, you know, because he'll be so happy I made meat love. <laughs> That's me. <laughs> Jeffrey's picking up some fresh peaches for dessert. Yeah. I'm not sure Jeffrey's in a meat love, actually. <laughs> I wonder, you know, so you know, if you're running a kitchen for years and years and years, that feels like such a specific dynamic. How do you how do you shed that? Like, you know, because I would imagine that dynamic doesn't work well in life. It probably works great in a kitchen. The, which, uh, Just the dynamic of being, being the head chef in a kitchen where you're running everything and you basically have to be right. acutely aware on top of I am, everything. I'm know? really my, – my wife doesn't want to be anywhere near me when I'm cooking because I'm one of these guys. It's like I'm – and all my friends are like this. I'm constantly wiping down my station, cleaning and organizing. I set up mise en place very professionally. Everything I need, I do all of my prep like way in advance. You know, I mean, I'm like, I'm having a, four people over. For me, cooking, I cook for 500 people, stand on my head. It's easy, easy, and I'm very comfortable. I have four people coming over for dinner in my house. It's like the invasion of Normandy. I'm planning and prepositioning <laughs> like that with the kind of military precision and stress. That that doesn't exist anywhere else in my life. It's it's. I'm I'm sure it's annoying. <laughs> <laughs> Do you need that stress? Do you feel like yeah. you need that stress? To I be think great? I'm one of those people who, if I don't have stress in my life, I'll I'll make sure to create it. Um, I think it's probably why I do so many things. Uh, if like if I finish a book or I finish a a, a, a project that's taken a lot of time, uh, you know, I don't I don't lay there thinking, oh, that's great. You know, what a sense of accomplishment I have now. No, there's a moment of terror. Yeah. What do I do now? My life is an empty, hollow void. Um, but, you know, if I sit here another five minutes, I'm going to start smoking weed. I'm going to start watching old Simpsons reruns, and I will never emerge from this torpor. <laughs> you know, I'm always sort of trying to outwit my inner hippie, who I'm quite sure is in there waiting to come out. And so my whole life is sort of a series of stratagems to outwit that guy. Uh, so I tend to overcommit to a lot of things, and, and I'm constantly getting involved and. In stuff that that uh, just to kind of keep keep going to keep that stress to keep me you know uh, you know on my toes and awake and, and interested. It's funny that it seems like the last fourteen years of your career is essentially a video diary of you literally fleeing from inaction. <laughs> just like I gotta yeah. go here now, I gotta go here, I gotta go see what's over there. What well, about those times of... when the plane is waiting for another plane? <laughs> I'll do a show. <laughs> a, a lot of it also is. I feel very lucky. Uh, I caught a big break with Kitchen Confidential. I was aware of that, and I started getting offered a lot of opportunities, and a lot of them were... uh, I'd already fucked up in every major way that a human being could fuck up. I'd made all the big mistakes, you know... You know, heroin, probably not a good idea. You know, cocaine's not going to make me happy. I knew these things. Um, You know... uh, So I... But what happened is, 
interesting opportunities came up where it was just a matter of, look, th this might not last. And I have a chance to work with David Simon. Yeah, I'm going to find the time to do that. I have a chance to do a comic book. Who wouldn't want to do a comic book? It's a, you know, I'm living out the little boy dream of, of doing these things. Uh, you know, I admire collaborators and people like Josh Homme, who, yeah. and Mark Lanigan, for instance, who, yeah. you know, have these careers where they're constantly working with very different, very interesting people. And I think part of the fun of what I do is that um, I get to do cool stuff with cool people. And that's fun. And, um, you know, given a choice between doing that and saying, oh, well, I'm a little busy right now. You know, maybe I'll just kick back. I'm not, I'm not going to do that because I'm very aware that this opportunity might not come again. Are you a control freak or are you good at if someone says, hey, man, I, I just got this boat and I just want to go for Let's fucking just go sail somewhere. Could you go, okay, sure. Or you're like, no, I really need to plan a bunch of stuff before I I'm do. either one or the other. Most of the time I'm a control freak. I'm, I'm happy when I can pull the plug. I mean, I, I can do it at certain times. It takes me a few days. Um, but there are a few times in my life when I could pull a plug. And one of the reasons like, I do this big, noisy network competitive reality show, The Taste. <laughs> um, and one of the joys of that is, you know, my show, you know, Parts unknown. It's I'm I'm from the very I decide where we go, what we're going to do when we're there, what movie director we're going to rip off. I talk <laughs> about all you know lenses and camera movements, and I'm all over the editing and the the the, the choice of styles of, of music. So I'm on every little detail. Uh, so to be a passenger in this large Titanic of a project where I just show up and they tell me you know go over here and and this is what you're doing today, that's actually very um, uh, very enjoyable to be part of this big team thing uh, when the rest of my life is pretty much, uh, yeah, control freak. It's kind of funny because I feel like I'm, I'm the same way with the control freak thing, but it's sort of interesting that you can crave the control stuff, but then you also kind of resent it at the same time where it's like, you want all the control, but then when people are like, what do we do, what do we do, what do we do? You're like, gosh, give me a minute. And you're like, right. yeah, but you asked for this. I mean, I like the stress of multitasking. I like being in charge in a kitchen. But at the same time, what got me there in the first place, I was a directionless, angry kid who didn't believe in anything. I, I hated school. Uh, uh, I clearly wasn't going to work in, in, in any job. But I found a home in the restaurant business, which is pretty much a military hierarchy. And, uh, you know, where you're part of a system with absolute rules and uh, – and, uh, you know, a hierarchy where you take your orders and you go, you do it. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And you, you go ahead. I found that very comforting to be part of that system. And, uh, um, so I, I clearly like order if it's working towards some goal that I like. And uh, I liked uh, – Thomas Keller talks about this, how, how it was a, sort of a big moment in his life when he first worked in a kitchen, working the dish station. He, he very – you know, in a world filled with uncertainties – the dish station, all these plates come in and they're dirty. And you put them in a nice row and you put them into the machine and they come out clean every time. It's awesome. <laughs> that, that simple thing made me very, very happy. My mom is like that where she's – my mom's an amazing cook and she does – you know, she just – she's very intuitive. It's like, oh, I just pick – oh, this seemed like it'd be good. You know, my mother's – my mother's my, – her family's Italian. I don't know. She's just really intuitive. But then she also will not let you help if you try to clean the dishes. Like, no, 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 no. Right. Like, for her, it's very therapeutic. 
She to me, I get almost I get fucking diarrhea when I look at a giant stack of dirty plates. I'm like, where's all that gonna go? That's gonna take forever. When she's right. like, no, 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 no. It's very calming to me. She she loves it. Yeah, I clean as I go. I'm cooking and cleaning. Yeah. I just I can't. You know, it's um, really you have some problems in that area. <laughs> <laughs> Were you always clean like that, or did you? No, did you I used to be a horrible, horrible uh, slob. I mean, I, I I went through it. You know. I'm making up from past sins, I think, in a lot of ways. Um, You know, I I mean, I went through a long period. uh, I wrote about it actually, but it was, you know, when I was doing dope. You know, it's like July and my Christmas tree is laying on its side. (laughs) You know, in the apartment, you know, the power's been turned off and, you know, and I'm trying to figure out how do I, I'm on the sixth floor of a building. How do I get rid of the Christmas tree without, like, my neighbors knowing what a Desperate, disgusting, junky scumbag they're living with. So I'm trying to. All I have is like a like an old K bar knife, and I'm trying to hack up this Christmas tree like a body and shove it in a plastic bag. So I drag it out the door. I figure I'll take it down a few flights of stairs, so they'll think someone else in the building is you know this pathetic. And this is a trail of pine needles leading up to my room. <laughs> Me and my wife did the same thing. We went to a, we had a Christmas tree at a, a cabin we rented in the in the mountains. And they were like, we like, they're like, you can't leave any trash behind. And we're like, well, we got a fucking Christmas tree. What are we gonna do? And then there was a fireplace. We're like, let's just take it apart and burn it. And it was just like taking apart a body the entire time. But then we had the husk, like the, <laughs> like the middle of the tree. And we're like, just put it. It started to snow. We're like, put it in the yard. Right. The snow will fall. And they'll never know until the spring. And yeah. at one point, did you look at each other and go? You know, I think it'd be really easy to actually kill a person. Yes, right. it, 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 the whole time. Why well, we stop here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we we're watching Tales from the Crypt. It seems so. Did easy. you feel that? It was kind of exciting, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Well, how do we stop? Well, it was just because we were working together. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but I think it's you know uh, that to me is one of the fun things about getting older is feeling like you've learned, like you've gained wisdom. And and having all of those dark periods and all the fuck ups and all those pits that you never thought you could get out of, it's really nice to be able to look back and go, not only did I get out of that, but I also learned a series of valuable lessons that I can tell other people who will ignore me and make their own mistakes. Right. But it's but it's really I don't know I, I I feel very grateful for all of the things that are very similar to that that I did when I, I was think when I got the the, the big break, I I real look I was standing there dunking French fries. You know, broke, having not filed my income taxes in 10 years, 44 years old, suddenly I'm a best-selling author. Mission one was, from that point on, was, you know, I'm not going to fuck this up. Mm -hmm. I realized I'm not likely to get another break like this ever, or any break. I can't fuck this up. And then once I had a child at age 50, you know, I had a, a, uh, my wife and I had a, my first and only child. Then there's no option. You know, you can't fuck up. And now it's a, it's a matter. It's an imperative. I don't have the luxury of even considering fucking up. I got to be, a, you know, I want to be a good daddy. You know, so, you know, I can't. Uh, you know, my daughter's not going to, you know, click on the internet and in, you know, uh, six years and see daddy, you know, drunk on a bar doing belly shots off some stripper. Uh, <laughs> you know, can't can't do that. Not going to do that. Dad will not be seen, you know, guilty of douchely behavior. <laughs> no, but ironically, in public anyway. Uh, ironically, she could turn on the internet and see her daddy in a bar eating sushi off a model in Japan. Never, I wouldn't. I wouldn't do it. <laughs> no, I, I wouldn't eat. I wouldn't eat sushi off a woman. <laughs> Good. Okay. I, I think that's a really poor fucking taste. Honestly, I mean, Plus, that's fucked heat, up. They would heat the sushi up, right? The body heat of the that moment. too. Yeah, that you don't too. Want to do that. But now, nah. <laughs> yeah, but you yeah. don't. Yeah, that's what throws I mean, me off. You know, the situation. I, <laughs> I, you know, it, she's a little girl. She's going to grow up to be a young woman. I don't want to. Now say, a you know, dead woman. I don't want her to say, <laughs> 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 "Daddy, that's like really fucked up." 
<laughs> well, it, it, but um, it, it seems, though, that uh, not everyone would have recognized those, that opportunity. Not everyone would have said, oh, I have a kid. Like, just because someone has a kid or has an opportunity, that doesn't always mean that they're going to go, oh, I better straighten up. You know, like a lot of times... People just have destructive behavior. Well, I, and I'm one of those guys. I mean, my whole life was about fucking up. But I was 44. I was old when it happened. So, 44 is um, not old. I just, and you know, you've seen, you know, I just, I, I was not going to make the mistakes that, that everybody else seems to make. You know, I'm not going to end up, you know, I'm not going to throw away. A shit fit if I don't get my, you know, mochaccino just right. You know, I don't need an entourage to tell me I'm great all the time. I just, uh, I'm not going to get a fight I'm with not, your hairdresser. I'm like not going to get in a fight with my hairdresser. <laughs> I mean, who has a hairdresser? Guy Fieri has a fucking hairdresser. Guy Fieri. Yeah. I mean, like, he should have been like, fighting with her somebody, long ago. <laughs> we did a roast of him. Someone said that hair, it's like in the front lawn to hell. <laughs> 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 What does he do, by the way? He you know, sings how, and smash What happens house. when he no, turns 50? It seems like it. You know, uh, how do you... Uh, I, I talk about it a lot in this stand-up. Donkey sauce is ageless. How does he de-douche? <laughs> you know, when, he, when he's... How does he make that transition in a middle age in an elegant way without giving up the brand? And does he do it gradually or overnight? You know, does he move the sunglasses from, slowly yeah. from the back? Yeah. Or, yeah. or all at once? Does he... bowling shirt. It just, yeah. it just Lose gets, a ring or two. Then, I would totally become... counsel him to do that. I would like, <laughs> go natural with the hair. Yeah. Your audience will still love you. Lose the rings maybe one at a time. Yeah. Yeah. Flames smaller yeah, every exactly. week. But what if, what if, like, he's kept it up and he has, like, his reading glasses? on the back of his head. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's like sirloin with a donkey Bernays sauce. It's like there's still just a little bit of a little bit of holdover. I mean, the guys, wild wine. Because it, you know, it's that, there's that peril of just sort of shrinking into the you, know, you become this sort of like mummified person with you know, like Al Pacino. You know, it's like you have Al Pacino's eighties yeah, hair, but no. there's this old dude underneath it. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Or Sylvester Stallone, who looks like Mr. Potato Head. Now, yeah. You know, it's like, it's like the glue on. I don't remember Mr. Potato Head being so veiny, but uh, <laughs> it's such a bummer because we, you know, you want to fight the, um, you know, you want to fight. Oh, I don't want to. I don't want to be old. I don't want to get old. I don't want to get old. But then. All the things you do to prevent that just make you look weird and old. Like it, it, doesn't, yeah. it doesn't make it better. Don't they have someone in their life who just says, you know, it's not a good look for you, man. No. You, know, <laughs> you really want to leave the house like that? You know, no, I, earned, I earned this ugly every little bit of it. You know? so, do you think that, Also, when he goes gray, is he going to dye his goatee that black? Like, I just wonder. Anyway. I don't know. Fieri Watch 2024. <laughs> I'm standing at the border of uh, Flavortown looking at <laughs> <laughs> it's the new world order. Uh, but I will. Did, did traveling so much and seeing and being exposed to so many different cultures and, and really trying to understand them on, on, on a granular level from the way that they communicate with food? Do you feel like that? Do you feel like that gave you perspective and that 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 sort of helped you um, see the world in a in a healthier way? Because um, you can get really insulated in your own culture. I travel with a really small crew, okay? Two shooters and a, a producer and assistant producer. We're all friends. We've all worked together for years and years. You know, we're like a band on perpetual tour. And everywhere I went, people were nice to me. You know, we were, we're with little cameras. We're not like, uh, you know, we're not a big professional crew that comes in. We don't do retakes. We don't, you know, we don't have lights. Uh, but... Uh, 
very early on, I just found what was life-changing was to go to Vietnam the first time and go uh, in the Mekong Delta and sit, um, I'm sitting there drinking shots with these, uh, all these older dudes who were all former VC cadre leaders. And they were nice, and we got drunk together, and they were singing songs. And uh, I, I just found that if I show up uh, and express a willingness to relax, accept what's offered uh, in, in good spirits with an open mind and an open heart, that, that people will in incredible places where you wouldn't expect them to be nice, again and again, they're incredibly nice and incredibly generous and, and happy to show they don't know who I am. They don't really know where the show is going to air most, most places. But just to show anybody who's interested what their lives are like. And I'm not saying it's, you know, answer to world peace or anything. But, but uh, I think there's value in showing a, a little glimpse of who these people are who we see later on the news, often as statistics, just to sit down and experience something as ordinary as a meal in a natural way. Uh, whether it's uh, Vietnam or up the Amazon or uh, Congo, um, I don't know. It's very it's it's very gratifying. I mean, it makes me makes me happy. I don't want to say it's made me nicer. It's made me maybe a little more hopeful. I used to think that you know the human race were basically bad people who would all turn into sort of vultures or jackals and tear each other to shreds given the slightest opportunity. I'm actually a little more hopeful about that. I mean, even places where they don't like Americans or they're they do a lot of things that we're very unhappy with or don't approve of. It's generally speaking, around the world, I find uh, a lot of nice people trying to do the best they can, often in very difficult situations. And um, um, I just I find that inter- I'm very grateful for it. it. It makes me, again and again, very often, I have these pinch me moments. You know, sitting there in a in the bush with uh, all these Vietnamese dudes, you know, playing guitar and giving me shots of rice whiskey and telling war stories. I feel lucky. You know, this is awesome. This is just like the movies. You know, I'm a movie nerd. I'm a movie, huge movie junkie, have been since I was a little kid. Um, so to find yourself living that dream and, and, and so often finding it better than the movie, um, largely because I think I, the food, I sit down and, and, and eat. And unlike so many other shows, what the mistake they make is, they don't understand that it's weird when you show up with cameras, however small, in some rice farmer's home or a little shop someplace. It freaks people out. They get stiff. So we spend a lot of time. We hang out. You know, we have one shooter in the kitchen with grandma while she's cooking. I'm playing with a family dog or doing shots with, with you know, grandpa. And we're hanging out for hours before we start shooting. And we, because we don't do retakes, we try to let things just unfold naturally and let people feel comfortable and get a little drunk. And, uh, you know, show things as close as possible to the way they are. Um, I think that's the difference between a lot of shows where you see these poor terrorized people sitting there, you know, where the host is doing all the talking. Mm-hmm. The host sitting there talking all about Vietnam and the, the customs and traditions of the region. It's like, what? Hey, asshole. You know, you <laughs> can ask what, them. You know, what are the guys sitting there terrified next to you? Well, that's why I mean, the soul of your show is very much like the soul of a podcast in the sense that you're you're humanizing entities, people, areas that other that most people just sort of look at as very, you know, one dimensional like, mm-hmm. oh, that's that thing. And then 
you're sort of opening the door and going, no, it's it's this, and they're human, just like you, and you can find all these analogous things Look, to you. And if the same rule applies for me, and whether I'm sitting, you know, with a rice farmer in Cambodia, or a former uh, gorilla, or an ex KGB officer, or Ted Nugent, for that matter. <laughs> you know, I disagree with Ted Nugent as as violently and as as much as anyone could disagree <laughs> on you know on just about everything. But we 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 both like barbecue. Um, you know, we, I got him to drink, I think, the second beer of his life. Oh, wow. um, <laughs> um, You know, we're, we're, it's possible to, I'm interested. You know, it's, a, he's fun to hang out with in spite of the fact that, you know, he's a, says appalling shit that offends the hell out of me. <laughs> I feel the same rule applies. If I could hang out with these guys, why can't I hang out with Ted Nugent? I don't have to agree with you to, to enjoy your food or like you and or like you or, or even respect you. Ah, well, that's a really interesting point because I feel like so much of the way that we communicate with people now is that we, if we don't agree with them, we become instantly dismissive, and it's like, nah, fuck you, you're over there, and I'm over here, and fuck I you. I find that in intolerable and and unforgivable. Uh, I, some of the best times I have are. Shooting in parts of America that I was grown up, I grew up to be really hostile towards. You know, the Deep South was. You know, they killed Dennis Hopper and uh, you know Peter Fonda down there. I'm not going down there. <laughs> I, 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 you know, gun country America, where everybody's in duck camos, and you know, red state America, they all got the Palin stickers. I'm actually, I have a really good time in those places and get along. I, I like to think you know very well with with people there, despite. And it's gratifying to to me, you know. I'm a New York liberal, uh, uh, you know. Go out hunting uh, uh, in, uh, you know, Missouri or you know Montana or Mississippi. Um, I have a lot of fun. There's a lot less bullshit, uh, actually. Uh, so I don't know. I, I I started looking at those parts of of my country this with the same attitude that I bring to other countries. So. I just think it's – I think we are – we can get so caught up in – I think people in general don't really want to understand and they don't really want to find common ground. I think they just want to bark their opinion and go, this is what I think. Instead of – you know, so someone, uh, someone didn't like something I did the other day, so they – I got a bunch of all caps tweets like, you fucked this up and why didn't you – and I go, look. That's not how you start a dialogue. That's how you start a fight. It's like, not how you get your way. Yeah, either, exactly. You know? You're doing more damage like right. because I, maybe I agree with you, but now I'm just defensive because you've just called me a piece of shit. You know, like what if we – even if you took a person who you thought was reprehensible for whatever they believed in, what if you just said, hey – I want to try to understand why you think this way, or or maybe here's what I think, right. and what and and maybe, and it doesn't mean you still have to agree with it, but I but I love that idea of like you know you can hang out with someone on a human level, you don't have to agree with everything that they think. I hate preaching to the converted. You know, that's really boring to me. I don't want to sit in a, a nightmare. Would for me would be to sit in a room where everybody totally agrees with everything I say. Uh, you know, MSNBC. It's like every show, it's like, look what these stupid Republican morons did today. I'm betting there aren't a lot of Republicans watching that channel. I mean, <laughs> that's sort of, you're not changing hearts or minds that way. Uh, it just seems sort of pointless to me, um, you know, to shriek at each other like that, especially on issues like, you know, guns. Uh, you know, I, I just think there's a lot of, you know, there's there's a lot of, there's, there's some common ground to be had. And I don't think uh, uh, that kind of... Uh, 
that kind of shrieking is, is, is helpful. Yeah, I just wish people would talk more. And, and even, even, I still think it's... Or at least have a beer together, eat some fucking barbecue, listen to some <laughs> Leonard Skinner, and, and fucking relax, dude, you know? <laughs> yeah, I know. It, it, and, and, and really, the idea that um, ha- sitting down and having a meal, which is something that everyone does, is a way to just get in and have conversations and break that tension and break that ice. And, and it's like, it's a, it's a common, it's a common ground. Like it's a, it's a way to find common ground to then ultimately lay the groundwork for now. Let's have a, you know, let's have some intelligent discourse, but I don't want to make it sound like my shows like a, like educational or inspiring or like I'm out there on some mission to bring people together. I'm out there to just have a good time. It's really, <laughs> it's, it's all about me, honestly. <laughs> and, and, and more to the point, it's about me and my friends getting to make these little mini movies where we get to rip off like directors of obscure films that nobody else has seen but us. That's really what Those are the, the Easter eggs. Those are the overall that, Easter eggs. It's the guiding force of, of the show. I mean, we will sit there and think about, okay, I'm really in a one car way lately, man. I've been looking at all oh, that Christopher Doyle cinematography is like fucking making my dick hard. <laughs> <laughs> How do we do that and where do we have to go to make a really self-indulgent one car way film or a Shinya Tsukamoto uh you know, we just saw Tokyo Fist. We got to do that. We <laughs> totally got to do that. How do we do that? Where do we do it? And, and how do we accomplish it cheaply? Uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, so it, it's not even an Easter egg. It's it's overt. You know, you know our homage, our black and white Rome homage to the early works of you know Fellini and uh, Antonioni. You know, we're well aware of the fact that you know, well, eighty percent of the audience are going to turn it off right away because it's. Uh, uh, black and white and another 20 because there's subtitles and 90% probably haven't seen those movies but god damn it we're we're going to make a really beautiful show here is yeah, there do you, do you do you notice any parallels between like like filmmaking and uh and cooking like do you like certain ingredients or the way that you handle balancing everything Mm, not really. No, it's okay, um, uh, show up on time, do the best you can, stay interested. But no, it's very different. Uh, uh, cooking well is, is you know you may come up with a really creative dish, but then you got to stick with that and you got to make it exactly the same way every single time, never varying. Whereas my show is all about whatever worked last week. Let's undermine that this week and do something completely different, if at all possible. And you know. We want people to tune in, you know, really like this week's show and then tune in next week and have to do a double take. Like, is this even the same show? This <laughs> Last week was so good. What the fuck happened? <laughs> how, do you know then, how do you know then when a dish is done? How do you know, like, this is it. It's not going to get any better. I'm not going to fuck with it. I'm just going to have to make a new thing. Uh, well, with the food, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's trial and error, trial and error, trial and error. And then you hit a point where you just know there's a sweet spot. And then you replicate that. You practice until you can replicate it every single time like a machine. Um, consistency is the the real god of the restaurant business. You know, I may love your food today, but when I come back with my friends in six months, having bragged about how wonderful that dish was, it better be the same, or that's not good for you. Whereas making TV is a whole different thing, um, it's just a whole different process. And uh, in that case, when I think it's ready, it's ready, and it's a completely subjective thing. Well, that's why it's so different. I mean, just. Because I've hosted shows for a really long time. And so I, I look at television a little bit. I, I look a little bit at the matrix code behind a television show. And so there's such there's a the difference. And one of the reasons why I think your stuff is 
has popped the way that it has is because it's so you. It's so much a part of who you are as opposed to, we hired a guy to on this yeah. this travel show template who's just, we're going to drop in to do some, like, the show is your personality. In I've been really video. lucky. Uh, from the very beginning, I was a sort of a freak case of, I didn't know how to make television. So I learned how to do it on the road with a with a, a, a couple, Chris Collins and Lydia Tenalia, who were the shooter camera people on Cook's Tour. And they ended up being my production partners to this day. So we sort of grew up together figuring out how to make television. And incredibly enough, all of these networks, one after the other, have enabled that. I mean, I have enjoyed a level of creative freedom to go where I want, do what I want when I get there, uh, uh, talk about it, tell a story, edit and score the way I want without any interference from a network. And at such times as there has been interference, we leave and somebody else has been willing to take us on. (laughs) It is, I don't really think, I can't think of anyone in the history of television who's had that kind of uh, freedom to say, you know, I think let's go to, uh, let's go to Libya or let's go to, I don't know, let's do do a show about like hentai and tentacle porn in Tokyo. (laughs) This is CNN. (laughs) (laughs) So really parts unknown. (laughs) Look, uh, 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 the look on their faces when we turned in uh, our Tokyo show. Look, it's all about tentacle porn and fetishism and (laughs) S&M and uh, uh, rope bondage. And and they were like, oh, man. (laughs) But they they backed backed us up. That's right. Oh, wow. And also, uh, I just – I'm curious about the – when you got trapped in Beirut that Um, – was there ever a point where you're like, no, 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 we're getting out of here? Yeah. Um, you know, it's weird. You know, when you, as an American, you think it's not going to touch us. You know, they won't bomb our neighborhood. You know, we, we stand there and watch the, the bombs every day. They're getting closer and other neighborhoods sort of getting pounded back 20 years. But there is this sense of uh, that you're untouchable and entitled and that, Surely the you know they're not going to bomb us, and you know the Marines are coming, and sooner or later. So I wasn't scared for my life there. Uh, we were all scared of uh, losing contact with loved ones and family back in the states. Um, the times that we're afraid on the show are places where where you start to live, regardless of whether you're American or camera crew or anything else. Uh, you 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 are forced to live by the same rules that a lot of people live in this world, meaning. Uh, everything's okay until it's not. Um, places like Congo, where there's zero law and order, zero, you know, the 29 different militias everywhere. And uh, even worse, if you're getting, like, fucked over by some militia, you know, the worst thing that can happen is the police or the army show up because they're professionals at fucking you over. And nobody will hear you scream. Uh, you know, we're, we're talking about a, a you know, complete failed state where we were you know, uh, extorted or threatened with imprisonment or worse, you know, twice a day, every single day, every little thing crossed the street. There's somebody saying, you know, you give me money or, you know, we're putting you in jail or we're going to kill you or whatever. Um, places where people are really, really poor and they've been through periods of often spectacular violence like Liberia. We've got just a lot of like young, paranoid, uh, hungry Men standing around in a in a market. It's a you know it's hot. It's crowded, and he, there's very much a sense that at any moment you know someone a cameraman will step on someone's foot and someone will point a finger and say CIA, 
and then you get a whole bunch of people piling on you. You know, things can go bad. In some parts of the world, things can go bad really, really quickly. And uh, we have security guys, unarmed security guys, but basically there'll be one guy with us and one guy across the street. And really their only job is to sort of look at the picture and say, guys, it's time to get back in the car. You know, I see one bad actor over there who's grumbling about the CIA and how you're here to spread cholera or some conspiracy theory and... (laughs) You know, it could get picked, you know, just the vibe is bad. It's time to leave. Um, so it's those situations that are dangerous. It's not so much like war and conflict where you know presumably where the bad guys are or what their motivations are. It's, uh, you know, where people are desperate and, un, un, you know, and, and under-informed or misinformed and things can just go bad. Do you, did you... Uh... Does it make you more nervous to go into those situations now that you have a child? I try not to take uh, stupid, you know, I try not to be stupid. You know, I think about, and look, we, you know, it was a conversation we had every day in Libya. Is it worth, our security guys are saying, guys, if we'd known, before we left, if we'd known what the situation was going to be when we got here, the situation has changed. If we'd known before we left, we would have advised you not to come. So you need to decide now, are we staying or are we going to the airport right now? We had that conversation like every day. And so you you think about what what's worth it and what's not worth it. You know, there was a time I might have, you know, tried to get with the cameras a little closer to if there's a riot or something or some kind of conflict or get up in a, get up in a you know, malicious face with the cameras. Um, tried to get shots that, that maybe we're not going to try. It's not just my daughter I'm thinking about. You know, I know my crew. I know their families, okay? I'm not going to get, to the best of my ability, I'm not going to get, you know, my camera guy shot for, for my stupid show. Um, so we just try to, we try to be smart. Do you think of yourself as a journalist or do you think of yourself just as a guy? I'm, that I'm a guy. I'm not a journalist. Because <laughs> you are, though. I'm not fair. I'm not, I don't care about balanced. <laughs> I don't try to give a complete overview. I am an essayist. I go someplace for a week. I don't, maybe I know a little about the place. Maybe I know nothing about the place. But I'll tell you what I saw and what it felt like. And that's really all I can do. Yeah. And you, did, you, did you say you're doing, you're doing stand-up stuff? Well, I do about 40. I've been doing, for the past few years, uh, speaking gigs. Uh, you know, in front of live audiences, but generally at theaters. I mean, ticketed events, and um, you know, I learned if you're standing in front of three thousand people uh, talking about food, you know, a dick joke every sixty seconds or so is useful. You know, you want to <laughs> be entertaining. So it essentially, over time, became, for better or worse, stand up. And it got to the point that, as I was trying to move out old material and move in new material, I actually did do some stand-up, uh, you know, impromptu stand-up appearances just to work on some, you know, Fieri jokes and some dick jokes. <laughs> and I was terrifying. <laughs> I went to the guy, you know, I was talking to uh, Bonnie McFarlane, who's a friend, uh, and yeah, um, I said, look, you know, how many times, you know, bef- how often do you have to completely replace your act? Like, how many times do you tell the same jokes bef- in, in a city before you've bur- it's burned, you can't do it anymore? He said, oh, you know, we work at the same, people work the same material for five years, eight years, still exact same routine. And I've been working in this one area of New Jersey forever. It's a different crowd every time. I can't do that. Um, and uh, I said, well, how do you, you know, I can't work new material in small clubs. 
So she said, well, you should go to the Comedy Cellar and, you know, do, you know, I'll hook you up. Go down there and, you know, do 10, 15 minutes and, you know, see whether this, some new stuff works. So I did. I had a couple wow. of drinks, went downstairs at the Comedy Cellar, and I'm like, it was fucking terrifying. And I look at it, it's all professional comedians. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I ran in with my coat, put my coat on, like, the piano, you know, 10 minutes and, you know, got out alive uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, and smarter. And, uh, the comedy cellar, that that's trial by fire. Like, that's a, that place I did is not okay. fucking around. Uh, I did I okay. The your security guy the, let you in there. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, we have they, a situation. Uh, Tony, we're going to get you out of here. You know, I didn't, I didn't you know, destroy, you know, for all time, but they invited me back. So I guess. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> um, but look, you, you know, you, you, I've been doing these tag team events with Eric Repair. You know, this is a distinguished three-star Michelin chef uh, with a reputation to protect. And we've done a lot of gigs together where we do some sort of an interrogation routine where I put him in a chair and harshly interrogate him about his... Uh, and over time, it's interesting. It's like a corrupting process, you know, where you start to realize... What's going to work? When to draw it out? Words with a K, you know. <laughs> uh, and, and to watch him get good at work in a crowd, you know, there's this sweet sort of sadness to that. You know? <laughs> it's like, you know, I remember when he was pure. You know, <laughs> now when he's killing him in Buffalo, now he's <laughs> jaded. <laughs> Did uh, did you have any specific questions? Uh, Matt's seen pretty much everything ever. Yeah, I watch a lot of uh, food and eat it too. Um, I don't watch a lot of food TV. No, do what do you watch? I watch Justified, which uh, yeah, sure. I think the writing on Justified is so glorious. But season two is, I think, really a high water mark. It really it, it sounded like Elmore Leonard talking. It was just yeah. so great. There were no throwaway scenes. It's like it could be just a little, like, you know, uh, sort of placeholder scene. You know, you know, like one character says, "I'll walk you to the parking lot." But even that scene is just rich and lush and good writing. Um, I've been watching, of course, Mad Men. Um, what else? Uh, I've been enjoying uh, Silicon Valley. I think it's terrific. It's I'm really enjoying it. It's a, I don't understand. You know, it's a whole new. Co- Culture to me, it's uh, <laughs> I, I, it, it's it's uh, been enjoying that. Have you checked out Fargo? Uh, Fargo's pretty good. I'm I went really in, I went in skeptic. It's growing on me. Yeah. Um, I like that. Uh, of course, Archer. Uh, yeah. I, I adore Archer's one of that's so one, one of my good. happier, proudest moments. Yeah, you've done. Yeah. I know you did a voice on Simpsons. You did a voice on Archer. You've done. Uh, Archer was so much fun to work. I, mean, I just love it. It's so filthy. You know? it's like <laughs> more anal jokes than any place else on TV. I'm a sucker for an anal joke. Um, Love that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess I remember. I saw. I remember you. You did. Um, you did stuff with at Comic Con. I think Barrowman interviewed it, you for G Four, and you you you, you talked about. Uh, I, feel I like fanboyed a Comic Con. How I got on Archer was Zap Comics. Right? I did uh, um, Aisha Tyler's podcast, and I told her I'm a huge super fan. And she invited me to, to go to the uh, I guess the Archer Live event they did there. Yeah. And I mean, I hung around. She got me. I hung around with the cast. I was totally geek fanboy back there. <laughs> and I walked up to the creator and I said, "You know, I will work on this show. I will write on this show for free. Anything I can do. I'm like super fanboy. Uh, I would love to work with you guys any way possible." So I basically hung around the parking lot until they gave me a job on the show. <laughs> and uh, it was it was so much fun. I, I get a, a guilty play. I watch Blacklist because uh, it, it requires no. 
you don't have to watch it in order. Right. You know, so there, I don't really, you know, if you miss an episode, who cares? Uh, uh, it's annoying, but, 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 but a fun, guilty pleasure. I feel ashamed of myself after, but I, <laughs> I enjoy it. Um, I, I think Hannibal is amazing. That's all I've been hearing. That how It is that amazing. Is. The production values on that show, it's so dark and so ugly and so violent and disturbing and... You just can't believe it's network, and the cinematography is fucking gorgeous, untouched, heard. and it's the best food cooking scenes of any show ever <laughs> on network television. Oh wow, it's, it is flawless. They have Jose Andres that does the uh, uh, consulting to the show. I really enjoy that that wow. show a lot. What are your thoughts on shows where restaurants are failing and someone goes and fixes them? <laughs> 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 Mostly, well, look, Kitchen Nightmares, the British version, was, was the good Gordon Ramsay. I mean, he'd go to these businesses and he, with real heart, he was the, more like the real Gordon uh, before he got on television. He, I think, actually cared about these people and gave them good advice. They deliberately find, much like the contestants on Hell's Kitchen, they're deliberately finding people, uh, they're hiring people for you know, entertainment value. They're yeah. delusional. I mean... The show should be four minutes long because he should walk into the restaurant, look around, and say, "You know what? My, my advice to you is close this fucking place. <laughs> You're an idiot. There's no hope for you. You're hopelessly delusional. You you will never succeed. Close now. That is my stop flushing good money down a hole. Much like on Hell's Kitchen, uh, my problem with that show is that the, the contestants are so fucking delusional. They're like, I cannot wait to, uh, you know, I cannot wait to uh, impress Chef Ramsay with my chicken Caesar. It's like, dude. (laughs) You know, and the prize is, you know, you'll be the chef of your own Gordon Ramsay restaurant. You know, if chef means chained safely to a radiator in the cellar, (laughs) stay the fuck out of the way. Because the whole premise of the show is faulty from the get-go because none of these people clearly could be trusted in a deep fryer at Chuck E. Cheese, much less running (laughs) anything. And there's no... There's no who will be the best. It's will the morbidly obese guy with the heart condition who, you know, had to be every season. Had to be every season. Had to be dragged out on a gurney last season who's reappearing this season. Will he manage to make the chicken Caesar before he like shits himself and passes out this time? Uh, that's really the only it's an exercise in just horrendous cruelty. It's like Dunk Bozo at the carnival. carnival. Uh, so I don't... I don't <laughs> well, I guess... I guess that, it, that, that is that, that... There is that idea of, uh, of television. Uh, television does ruin a lot of things, you know, especially... Like, the use of the word reality television is funny because... And, and they've stopped using that term a lot and they've started saying, well, docuseries. You right. Know, because it's not, re- you know... It is people do people watch reality television and they they watch it like it's news where the, and even news is not really that balanced but they still go oh well this is this this things happen in this way and this is exactly how that right. like no this was all engineered by- I can't I literally there's some shows I can't watch like my my wife will watch like Real Housewives of New Jersey and yeah. I can't make it through an episode it's too it's too ugly it's just too too horrendous I I, I it's like you know, donkey porn, you just look at it and it's seared into your head forever. No, no, and, 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 and you just <laughs> and you just can't flush it out. I, it, it's I, I just I can't stand it. It it hurts and, and d- d- discourages me. Uh, you know, it's uh, I, I can't I'm afraid of living in that world. And 
Uh, it's it's like New extreme, Jersey. It's like I, I grew up in New Jersey, but people didn't look like that in where I came from. It, it, it's too. It's like extreme violence. Uh, it, it, I just I, I have to look away. I can't look at it too long. Yeah, the parts know, these that delusional, I... scary people with these so freakishly weird. surgically mutilated people <laughs> living edge. in this like weird bubble of like you know delusional fake celebritydom. <laughs> Um, well, that's great. I mean, like, yeah. I in the, in the early 2000s, I hosted a, a reality dating show. And when people, like, I would always say, the show is good for television but bad for humanity. Because whenever people, whenever just normal people would come on, the producers would be like, show's fucking boring. These people, they just talked and came in. I was like, so they would, they would bring, you know, they would put on deliberately, cri- like, you know. Cri- and then people are, people are coached watching reality television to... To think, oh, I have to be crazy to get more screen time. Oh no, everybody so they come in crazier. Everybody knows the game. You know, you see, like by season three of uh, you know uh, uh, what was Jersey Shore, they all know the drill. You know, they know what they got to do to get screen time. And now, casting for for a competitive reality show like The Taste, you know, there's a professional class now of people who they don't care whether they're on a cooking show or a millionaire matchmaker or they just want to be on TV and they know that the, the, the more uh, hyperbolic, histrionic and crazy ass they are, the more likely they're going to get on TV. You know, got to be, okay, whose hair extensions do I have to pull out? You know, I'm here. <laughs> I'm ready. There was a guy on a, on a uh, had a hotel in Miami, and he was on Bar Rescue and Hotel Impossible. Yeah, they're all like, damaged. The hotel and they're the all damaged goods in the hotel. Somebody, a friend of mine, worked on one of these shows, and he said, "Oh, dude, you have no idea these poor kids. Like, as soon as they show up on set, we start, you know, feeding them Valtrex and tequila." And, uh, <laughs> and it's like, okay, kids, you know what the drill is. Yeah. Get out there and fight and fuck. <laughs> it's a, it's it's almost ironic that you actually go to other countries that we think of as being like those places are like the wilds and you're like no people are actually very calm here and very human and here is where people get fucking crazy I mean, the real housewives uh, franchise is hugely successful but you know what about the kids what does a little girl you know see this i can't wait to grow up and you know get duck lips and you know beat up some bitches and have my whole life <laughs> revolve around you know these horrible men and be a money grabbing money grubbing you know delusional you know, fuck with. Yeah. Uh, what message does that send? You know? Yeah. How do you protect your daughter from all my daughter? Uh, look, I, I I think about this. How do I be a good dad? It's something I think about a lot. How do I be a good dad to a, a young girl? Um, she's going to make bad decisions in her life. I mean, that's what kids do, right? Um, all I can do is, you know, I can raise a kid with with uh, good self esteem. Okay, because anytime you see somebody, you know. You know, on a on a dirty shag carpet with Ron Jeremy, uh, chances are there's some self esteem issues there somewhere. <laughs> so she will have high self esteem and martial arts skills. Yes, <laughs> really, all I I think I can. She'll she know she'll know she's loved. She'll think well of herself. And uh, any boy pulls her hair in uh, first grade, he's going to get seriously fucked up. <laughs> she, you know, they will. <laughs> no kidding. You know where we all do jujitsu together, and like, uh, you know, I'll be working with my my trainer, and she'll be working with. <laughs> she has one too, and I'm looking over, and she's like seven. She's so much better than me, and all the black belts are looking at her. You know, thumbs up, and go, wow, she's good. Meanwhile, I'm like wheezing for air, <laughs> flop sweat. Like and she'll come over and patronize. Me. She's like, you're doing really well, Dad. I you know, pat me on the head. I'm like, oh, yeah, thanks, honey. <laughs> uh, 
So just as we're sort of wrapping up, what is important to you? How, how, is your, how have your priorities changed in, you know, in the last 30 years? How, like, what did you, when you first start, when you first started out, you first found a kitchen, you first found like, ah, I have this structure. What was important to you then? And then what is it that you feel like is important to you Before, now? Before, I just wanted to, I didn't think about the future. I figured I'd be dead by 30. I just wanted to get high, have fun, get laid. Um... Uh, I did a lot of uh, shit that I, I didn't care about how I was going to feel about it the next day. Um, now, um, you know, I try whatever I do. I, I don't want to look in the mirror and, and feel ashamed uh, of what I did the, the day before. I'm, I mean, I'm trying to be a reasonably decent citizen of the world. Uh, you know, I don't want my daughter to be embarrassed uh, by my behavior. I mean... We will have to have the talk. You know, I've written about my life very honestly. Uh, I will have to have the talk with her at some point. Look, Daddy did a lot of these. You know, he did all of these things, but that was him then, and this is the person you've known since the minute you were born. Is is just the way you see him today. Um, and I just, you know, I want to be that person. I want to be a good dad. Um, I want to make, a, a cre- you know, ever more creative work as to do the best I can at it. Have fun, stay interested, um, and you know, do work uh, that 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 that's you know, work with interesting people and and make beautiful things that I can feel proud of. Are there still some places that you do? You have a, a really long list of like, gotta go here, gotta go here, gotta go here, gotta go. Well, here. there are a lot of places that I've been to and done shows where I either didn't get it right or there's a lot more. Uh, you know, China, I could make TV, you know, make a show once a year or twice a year for the rest of my life and still die ignorant. Mm-hmm. Um, but Iran, where I hope to go uh, sometime this year, uh, I'd love to shoot. If the situation changes, I'd love to make TV in Syria. Um, uh, love to go back to Cuba. Um, number of places I'd like to go back to. Uh, Iran is really high on the list. Uh, really looking forward to shooting there because we have s- no... Uh, no one knows what it's like uh, to, to show how do ordinary Iranians live, what's life like there at the dinner table. Uh, I, I, I'm told that's a very different picture than, uh, you know, a governmental level and, you know, our nation's policies towards each other. So I'm really curious about it. I mean, it's a very old, gorgeous, you know, culture, the Persian Empire. Um, I'm really interested uh, and really looking forward to that. Well, it's, I think the underlying message that I think the big takeaway is just what you said at the end is just get curious about things. If you, because if you're curious about something, whether or not you agree with it right away or think you understand it, it just gets you to ask questions. And it's I think curiosity is a good place to come from it, rather than it's my know. only virtue. It's my only true. <laughs> if I have any, uh, I, I'm 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 confident that that curiosity is a virtue. And I know I, I, I am a curious person. Um, you know, I'm genuinely interested. I, you know, I like to read. I like to watch films, and um, I like to learn stuff. Um, I like going to a, a new place where I don't speak the language and don't know anything, and be forced to learn a whole bunch of stuff in a short period of time. Even if it's just a little bit of stuff. For me, a really happy moment when I go to a, a new country I've never been and don't speak the language is that that first minute after a few days where you can successfully like go to the corner without fear. Or, or awkwardness and successfully order a bowl of noodles for yourself alone and sit down and just look out at the street. There's a real sense of a triumph and accomplishment in that little thing, just ordering breakfast for yourself, whether it's in France or noodles in Vietnam. That's deeply, deeply satisfying to me. And, um, you know, it's just little things like that 
um, that first moment of sitting down at a low plastic stool and ordering a bowl of noodles and looking out at the world, passing by and saying, man, you know, life is good. Uh, that makes me happy. That's why you'll. That's why you'll never get old because you all you always have that. I want to oh, have new experiences, that, Chris. dude. No, no, Chris, I am old. It's that. way too late for that. But I mean, I mean, I mean, in terms of you know, I guess I, I completely understand. I feel like I'm starting to understand why people get old at a young age, where they just go, okay, this is my walled garden. I've got it all set up, and I don't need anything on the other side of that wall. It's all right here. It's safe and protected. It's basically just. Safety. I, I, it's funny because I talk about it a lot. Um, and it would drive my wife crazy. I'd say, you know, I'm looking forward to you know, one of these days. I'm just going to say, fuck it. And I'll buy a little place in Italy. And, you know, for me, you know, like Don Cheech in The, in the Godfather 2, you know, that's going to be, you know, I'm going to sit there in the garden with a big hat, you know, <laughs> chase my grandkid around the backyard, you know, and then, you know, I'll grow tomatoes, make bad wine, you know, make experimental sausage projects, you know, and die in the, or- you know, with an orange <laughs> in my mouth, like, you know, yeah, you know, experimental sausage projects. You know, my, and my wife is like, you know, I, I, I grew up like that. What do you want to do that for? And then also, who are you fucking kidding? You know, you, you, you there's, it, it's pretty to think so, but. But uh, I'm going to keep working until I can't. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. Did you want to promote something while you're here? Do you nah. want to promote Parts Unknown or a book or anything? No. Nah. Well, it was an honor to have you on. <laughs> I'm so glad, man. I'm no, so glad. I had Watch fun. Archer. Yeah. That's what he wants you to do. Yeah. Watch Archer. <laughs> Thanks, man. Good to see you. Thank you. It was fun. All right. Enjoy your burrito, everyone. Uh, that was fun. Thank you. Sweet. All right. So, Tokyo. All right. Tokyo. Totally life changing. Mario Batali went late in life and he came back and was like, like a lot of us, dude, what do I do now? You know, what do I do now? What does this mean to my life? I've seen many things. Yeah. And I just don't know how to, how to sort of take that in. Because it really, all these sort of assumptions that, like, you know, I come, I come from the best country, the most modern country, the most interesting country, or, or that Italy has the best food. or No, it's just a whole different criteria it's just very, very, as foreign a place as you can go. And it's really cool and really beautiful. And they've just really thought about pleasure, what's necessary for pleasure and what's not. So they've really stripped down beauty, pleasure, excellence down to the minimal three components. I mean, they, they work hard, but man, when they relax, when they go to a traditional like uh, inn in the country with onsen and the hot tubs and all that, it's... it's you could step back into the 16th century or, or just, you know, you were living in Blade Runner 10 minutes later. Sure. It's just so awesome and so unknowable and, and deep. And they have the best bathrooms in the world. My whole crew, we look forward to Japan because it's got the Japanese toilets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You spray your ass with the hot water and the nice warm seat. I bought one of those. Everybody's, yeah, late, everybody's late to work. On, you know, they're like, oh, sorry, I need a little more quality. Time. <laughs> Do you think there's like something about the fact that they're like, you know, they're not really allowed to have a military, so there's so much money made that just goes back into the country as opposed to a military force? You think that has anything to do with it? No, it's just different, 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 completely different society, different, uh, different way of looking at the world. Uh, you know, these are people who, who, you know, if you look at Japanese poetry and art, it's really looking at, or, or flower arranging, I think will tell you a lot about it. It's just just a couple of elements, the perfect twig, the perfect single flower. Yeah. You really, you spend enough time there, you really get it. You know, sushi, perfect sushi, it's amazing rice. 90% of it is about the rice. It's yeah. not about the fish. And it's 
the, the, the perfect piece of fish cut the right way, served at the right temperature in the appropriate point in its decomposition. It's not about <laughs> freshness. You know, it, it's really a, a simple good or deceptively simple good thing with a lot of, you know, centuries of thinking about it, yeah. you know, in the run-up to, to actually doing it. Wow. Fucking awesome. Yeah. And their pop culture is so insane. I mean, you know, otaku culture. It's yeah. Like, it's, they have an entire district of just, you know, action figures and American stuff, too. Like, you know, uh, Rat Fink. I mean, you know, you want to find oh, wow. Rat Fink memorabilia. You know, there's wow. a whole fucking <laughs> section. You know, they, they, are, they are on it way more than us. It's like an entire Comic-Con district, you know, yeah. six floors deep. And, uh, you know, the real dolls... Yeah, uh, my friends went to a bar where robots circulated. Oh no, I, I, I did it on the show with a robot, a robot nightclub. You, yes, 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 yes. Uh, it's on. Uh, I'm sure it's uh, on Netflix. You can see the episode we did. It's plenty. It's pretty dark, and we yeah. went to the robot nightclub. It's like robot strip club, uh, buff, uh, restaurant. It's so. It, you know, go-go girls, dinosaurs, aliens, lasers, <laughs> and, uh, you know, Gangnam Style. It's yeah, yeah. completely <laughs> fucking nuts. It's the greatest show, actually, I've ever been to in my entire really? life. Really? Yeah. Shit. <laughs> All right, Same. I gotta go. I gotta yeah. go. It's unfortunate that I haven't been yet. <laughs> but I always, I always feel like I need, like, two or three weeks to go, not just, like, seven days. Like, I feel like seven days, two of the days are travel. Yeah, you need, like, ten days. So, like, ten days, spend a week there uh, in Tokyo... Uh, and and just explore, and you'll have the best. It'll change. It really is. I'm not joking. It is like dropping acid. It it you, know, you come back from that looking at the whole world differently. I will. Okay. Right. Thank you guys. Thank you. It was fun. Now leaving nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. Are you tired of dating assholes? Do you want a Prince Charming? If so, we're filming a reality show. Sign up here. 12 American women are flown over to the UK for a Bachelor-style reality dating show. There are so many questions about a show like this because it's so odd. These women have been told that they were going to be dating the world's most eligible bachelor, Prince Harry. What? Y'all playing with me, right? You can binge The Bachelor of Buckingham Palace exclusively on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts or the Wondery app.